The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. And of course, publishing their work, such as The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. The Hill follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand Province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. To find out more about The Hill, to buy The Hill, and see all the other lines of effort going on at Second Mission Foundation, go to Second Mission Foundation at secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. And I thank Second Mission Foundation for being a sponsor of this week's episode. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, informative content. So go ahead. Surf the pages of Havoc Journal, read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So if you haven't been on lately, go check it out again, HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Jeff Dardia. And for those of you that don't remember Jeff uh, from when he was on the show before or never knew about him in the first place, I'll tell you about him here in a second. But I just want to say he couldn't have been a more perfect guest for this show. And I didn't totally realize that until after we recorded the show because I realized we'd recorded it on the exact one year anniversary of when this show was launched, which was pretty darn cool. Um, and so in retrospect, Jeff was a perfect guest to have on, um, embodies so many of the things that we wanted to capture at the weekly havoc and then profiles and havoc when we transitioned. And, uh, so it was great. It was great to have him on. Um, and I'm glad we could, uh, mark our one year anniversary by talking to Jeff again. So let me just take a second to say thank you to everybody for letting us last for one year. And, um, thank you for you know, uh, finding us in greater and greater numbers. Um, it's uh, not a lot of shows that get sponsored within their first year, much less have two sponsors, much less um, get the following that we've had. And obviously, uh, you know, everyone at the Havoc family has been uh, supportive. And I want to thank uh, Lisa Suderman for her tireless efforts on social um, and what she does for Havoc to help push the word out. And of course, uh, the editor-in-chief of Havoc Journal, Mike Warnock, for um, knocking himself out to, uh, you know, plug us on the site and uh, make sure the articles on the show go up. 
Uh, that's just been a huge help. And of course, to Charlie Faint, who is, I guess, the closest thing I have to a, to a, someone riding shotgun on this show. And Charlie, of course, has filled in for me on the show and has been on multiple times. And you just couldn't ask for a uh, better partner to uh, launch a podcast with. So it's been a blast. And thank you to everyone for making it so worthwhile. So that's all a long way of saying that Jeff Dardio was a perfect guest to have on. <laughs> kind of got sidetracked there on my point, but uh, I was glad Jeff was on. Uh, we And it was funny because we'd actually been trying to get this episode together for a while. And um, either Jeff's life or my life uh, would spike here and there. And we just couldn't get it together for a while. And it just so happened it ended up coming at a very opportune moment. So for those of you that don't know or don't remember who Jeff is, he is a career special forces soldier. He is currently a master sergeant and he serves as the operations sergeant for third special forces groups, human performance and wellness program. And he has done a lot in that capability. I won't go through every acronym and every initiative that he has launched uh, for third group, but it, and we'll talk about it a little bit in the episode, but you'll hear some of the really um, unprecedented work that Jeff has pioneered for third group um, and the effect that that's had on third group. Um, so great guy, but that's only half of his job. Of course, that's just his military side. He also founded and directed the special operation forces health initiative program for task force dagger special operations foundation, where he created a pipeline that has directly assisted hundreds of wounded, ill and injured soft members and their families. So that alone you know, if he did nothing else, that would be incredibly impressive. But yeah, on all of his deployments, all of his combat experience, the fact he, you know, went through buds uh, in the Navy pipeline, uh, it just a wealth of military experience and resilience um, in his life and what he's gone through, what he's overcome uh, because he had to um, leave the Navy or he left the Navy to join the Army ultimately when he didn't become a SEAL. And, uh, those of you that remember that previous episode, remember the story behind it. And Jeff is a uh, fascinating dude and a really interesting uh, perspective on so many things. That's why we kind of had a widespread conversation. You know, it's kind of a target rich environment for us to talk about things. Of course, the fact that Ukraine was popping off and, you know, we're still reeling from the Afghan drawdown. And I did not realize until after the fact how much uh, Jeff had been involved in, um, efforts to get Afghans out of Afghanistan and that he and I have been <laughs> kind of working different aspects of similar programs. Um, and, and I didn't realize he was there. And then I found that out after the episode. So we didn't even get into that. Um, but Jeff is just, um, you know, always been a front lines dude and to be able to sit down and talk with him and talk about the lessons learned and the way he sees that uh, his perspective integrating into the problem sets that we have today in the country was incredibly important, timely, and interesting. Uh, what else am I forgetting about Jeff? He, um, not a whole lot, I don't think. I know I just covered a whole lot of aspects. Well, I guess I'll say this. He is a public speaker as well. He writes a lot at Havoc Journal. I didn't even mention that. Um, so he constantly is engaged in educating, empowering people from all walks of life, not just veterans, to take ownership of their health. Um, so you know, again, just a lot of selfless service, um, in his past and in his present, 
He has been on many military and health-related podcasts. He's been featured in high-visibility publications from the New York Times to the Army Times and everything in between. He even co-wrote and published his first scientific paper in 2019 in the Alternate Therapies in Health and Medicine Journal. It was called Neurotoxicity Associated with Traumatic Brain Injury, Blast Chemical, Heavy Metal, and Quinoline Drug Exposure. So there's that. Um, so Jeff is just a uh, wealth of uh, experiential and medical knowledge. And um, anyway, have I oversold him? I, I couldn't possibly have undersold him with all that. So hopefully you guys have a great idea of what's to come. I think you'll enjoy it. I certainly did. I can't wait to have Jeff back on, um, hopefully for a more rosy conversation <laughs> towards the end. I think we started bumming each other out. But uh, it was it was great to uh, to pick his brains a little bit. Um, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Jeff Dardia's profile in Havoc. Welcome back, Jeff. Hey, what's going on, brother? How you doing, dude? It's good to see you, man. Are you at home? Is that yeah. it looks like home? That's my home office. Dude, right on. So do you guys have offices or or, you have like central offices that you go to, right? Or are you just guys all virtual right now? Uh, Just today, I've got a big event coming up this week. So I'm trying to get stuff at home so I'm not distracted. And then I get this knocked out and then I'll go and get everything set up. I know the feeling. You can tell because I'm sitting in my hotel room looking (laughs) like I got a four-day hangover, which I kind of have from our launch, which is today, actually. Nice. Uh, so yeah, um, dude, it's good to see you, man. It feels like it's been a long time, but I guess it hasn't. It's only been like six, six ish months since we, uh, since we talked, but, um, dude, how much the world has changed in those six months, right? I, I don't even know where to start. We had Afghanistan withdrawal. We got Russia, obviously. Um, it's everything I got going on with the foundation and then active duty as well. So it's been probably one of the busiest years of my career. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because obviously um, I'm a little inside baseball for everybody listening, but it's taken Jeff and I a minute to kind of link up. Um, and his op tempo, you know, really has surged a lot lately. How how are you splitting your time? How are you finding this now with, you know, things kind of kicking off in Ukraine and all well, that? Well, I'm, I'm, my career, I'm at the end of my career now, so I'm running uh, operations for the human performance wellness program. So active duty side, I'm pretty much TDY. I'm, I'm traveling on gotcha. all the other units, helping them set up their programs, doing a lot of public speaking and teaching. And then obviously the day-to-day operations in the military back here. I've got an awesome team. I just got a new crew in that it's a blessing to have. I don't, you know, it's a force multiplier. So I'm actually training the guy I work with to replace me because I'm going to be moving up the ladder a little bit. So and then all the task force dagger stuff, same way. We've hired some new people in, uh, gives me a breather. Um, I'm, you know, I was yeah. before it was a one man show yeah. and now we have a two person show. We got a female, incredible female, Rebecca, we just hired on and she has taken the reins and doing real well and helping Alan out. So it's been really good. What are you guys seeing, um, as far as the biggest changes? I mean, I guess let's catch up from the last time. What did you see different? Let's start with the end of Afghanistan with that withdrawal. Was there an uptick in requests and services? What was going on on your end that you were noticing? All right. So, yes, behavior health went through the roof. Um, 
I've never seen so many requests for like behavioral health programs and then like stellate ganglion nerve blocks. Those, we just did a whole ton of those. Uh, it was just like a conglomerate of everything happening at once. It was like a cataclysmic event. The drawdown of both Iran and Afghanistan, Syria, Africa, and then we have a generational shift with all these new people coming in who've never been to combat. And then the older guys are broken. So it's like an exodus of med boards, medical retirements, regular ETSs, and guys are starting to learn more. Our, our education campaign has been phenomenal. And we're really reaching out and people are talking. And now people are stepping forward to get help. So that has been incredible. Do you notice that there's less resistance on the part of new guys to raise their hand and say they might need help or hey, I, I got to get smart on this or what preemptive care do I need to get? Is, is there is there a bigger uptick in willingness? Oh, sorry. I just lost you. Can you hear me now? There we go. Okay. Now sorry. You're I don't know. What no, happened. you're good. No, it's all right. All right. So yeah, so we've seen a massive uptick and it's not a bad thing. At first, the providers were like, hey, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, we don't have enough people to, you know, cover down and all this stuff. It was, it's kind of like a little knee jerk reaction, which is understandable when you're already undermanned, right? And then you start having these conversations and people come out of the woodwork. At first, everyone was scared because they thought they were going to be slammed and we wouldn't be able to service these people. But what we've seen is a decline in suicides at our unit, uh, which is phenomenal because a lot of other peoples are going up. So at first, yes, it was a little overwhelming when all these people came forward and started asking for doctor's appointments and seeking behavioral health and going to get stellate ganglion nerve blocks. But I can speak on Fort Bragg, things are, you know, falling into place or getting in a good battle, battle rhythm as far as taking care of everybody and getting them into the program. So at first it was hectic, but now it's settling down and we have a good SOP to get all these people help. So it's been phenomenal. Is, is that the difference? The SOPs in place? Yes, absolutely. Um, think of battle drill one alpha, right? That's basically what I nicknamed my little SOP for the care pathway. But when you go into combat and you train for that situation over and over again, you don't have to think you react. Yeah. And so if everybody had an SOP for if they redline or something catastrophic happens to them, whether it's addiction, suicidal ideation, abuse, or whatever it is, they know what to do. They don't have to think about it. I know this pathway's here. I know how to access it. I know who to talk to. My leadership knows it's there and I will get help. So that has been phenomenal, establishing that SOP through all the units, not just where I am. And then on the 501c3 side of the house with all the nonprofits too. And we're building a coalition right now to do that. There's thousands and thousands of veteran nonprofits, but not all of them provide medical care. Now that we're not seeing all these people come back in body bags, missing arms and limbs and everything, all these organizations that put all their eggs in one basket on the wounded part aren't looking at the ill and injured, cancer and suicide, right? And TBI, lifestyle, environmental related. So they're trying to find their new you know, place at the table of how they're going to support that. They've got a lot of money, but it's not in their mission and their charter to do those types of things. So what we're trying to do is build partnerships with these uh, nonprofits to have them sponsor people through our task force dagger pipeline. And that we've, you know, we're partnered with Hunter seven. It's been a great relationship with that. Um, I used to do a lot of the research stuff and, you know, getting that word out there. You've seen all the stuff I've done, but I don't have the bandwidth for that. And enough people know now where we can use them. They do the messaging. 
They do the educate. We all do the education together, but they can do the research part of it. That's not my wheelhouse. I have no desire to be a research writer. I've I've published a medical paper, but I don't want to do another one. Like, you know, I just want to go back into leading and getting people in, you know, the know and getting them help they need, directing, directing them to care. I'm a care coordinator. So I'm not providing their medical care. I'm providing them and institutions and programs that are out there. So do you see though, um, just atmospherically with um, the soft community or the Fort Bragg community writ large, do you see uh, a lack, uh, a decreased resistance to getting care though? Yes, it's absolutely. Like, yeah. 100%. So it's changed the yep. behavior. The whole culture's changed and it, it's a big shift. And this new generation coming in, once people establish habits, it's hard to break them. And we had a lot of leaders. We were in war for 20 years, right? So all of those things, we compartmentalized. We put them in the rucksack. And we never talked about them because we had a mission to, yeah. to focus on. And our job was to stay in the fight, stay ready, and keep our guys alive. So everything back here is a distraction. If anything pulled away from that, it was a threat. So getting help, you know, getting yourself recovered and doing all those things, it, it wasn't looked good at just because the mission. Yeah. And now that we're at a pause, right? After everything's ramping down. People have time to look back and reflect. They're like, oh God, like, you know, man, yeah. I probably ran a few of my guys into the ground. I ran myself into the ground. Um, we need to do better. And now we have time to do it. Let's do it. And it, there's not that much of a push. Where we see the biggest push is always middle level management. It's people still trying to get the bird, still trying to get the star, the wreath, whatever it is to uh-huh. get that next promotion that they're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And if it means stepping on a few people on the way to do it, you know, okay, but we're seeing less and less of that guys, you know, the ones who've, you know, put rounds down range and done the deeds, they've been affected by all that. They're on, you know, getting divorces, they've had cancer, all these weird health issues. They see it now. So now it's not, now it's not the fight. Everybody knows what's going on. There's enough people talking about it, enough organizations out there. SOCOM's done a phenomenal job of, you know, putting together like our cancer symposium we did and uh, doing other health type symposiums and conferences and collaborations. And what we've done with the VA as well, that's been massive this year with the toxic exposures. With the two acts we got through, there's going to be a toxic exposure center of excellence. We helped get off the ground, phenomenal partnerships with those organizations and the VA and the active duty. So everything is falling together in place right now. It's coming together. So that's been phenomenal. So there's no good answer for this, but I'm going to ask it just as a devil's advocate, worst case scenario, doom and gloom um, question. Obviously, one of the many downsides of everything popping off in Ukraine is we're, we're coming out of this very introspective five, six month period where, like you said, everyone's suddenly starting able to take stock, go, Hey, the war's off, um, for better or for worse, I can kind of get right with myself, get right with my guys, but now fucking Putin, (laughs) thanks to him. Now, suddenly it's like, Oh shit, the engine's got to rev up again. So it's becoming a tactical pause where we, a lot of people thought, Oh, this is like a proper stand down that we're going to have a, a really good period of time to just kind of reset. What is, I mean, let me put this on you, not the organization, but just what's your take on the turnaround, on the flash to bang to getting people 
revved up again. Obviously, getting the care they need is going to help people fire up the engines when they need to. But mentally and, and getting that shift right back into warfighter mode, back into um, a little bit of, uh, you know, I don't give a shit. I got to get this done mindset. What, what, what do you, how do you see that, that transition going? I, I see there's two aspects to this. I see a young generation of guys that came into SF that wanted to fight. And then they showed up and they're like, hey, party's over. And they're chomping at the bit to go. They're ready. That's why they joined. And then you have the older generation that just got done fighting 20 years. And we saw what happened in Afghanistan. They're like, yeah, I'm going to take care of my family. This is a young man's game. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of us would, obviously we would go in a heartbeat. There's no like, hey, I'm not going. But when you watch what happens to your your community after 20 years of fighting and burying all your friends and seeing the third and fourth order effects on the families, uh, you're more hesitant to go jump blind into a politician's war. It's our, in the military, that's your job. You do what you're called to do. No one's going to say no to that, right? But in the back of your mind, you already know what happened prior to that. That's weighing on everybody's mind. I'm not speaking on behalf of the military right now, but I'm telling sure. you personally and through my interactions with the people I work with who've been fighting for the last 20 years, uh, they're not ready to jump in the pool blindfolded because they know that uh, the past track record, what just happened. <laughs> so yeah. that is there. But like, again, we're professional and we do our job. And if we're called to do it, we do it no hesitation. But I mean, there's definitely two trains of thought on that. The other thing too, is that we've never seen warfare in our lifetime that is like this. And we've gotten so addicted to the CT thing running around, yeah. you know, in gun trucks in Afghanistan, when you have air superiority, you have close air support all the time and you have secure communications where no one's going to DF you and take you out in a few minutes. So that is a, Hey, we need to get back to the basics fight and then, you know, relearn all those basic things we came in and then master the basics. That's where the fight is. And you're seeing it prove out every day with Ukraine and Russia. When's the last time Russia had a battle this big? Yeah, Their yeah. military is never like Grozny, okay, Crimea. Those are little conflicts. Yeah. But as far as like Afghanistan was their last major conflict. And they're learning on the go. But a guerrilla fight, you're going to see, you see what Ukraine is doing to their military, right? And imagine if they had just a little bit more air superiority and a little bit more uh, better communications and then supply routes. Yeah. So, I mean, I won't go any more of that, but. No, listen, it's a legit uh, issue for you guys on where you are now, both with your career, the nonprofit, all the rest of it. How do you prepare for something like this? What do you, do you, does the mission change? Does the focus change? Do you go, Hey, this is because the nature of this war is different. Um, or, I mean, again, we're not in it yet. But, right. you know, is there some anticipatory sense of, hey, you know something, let's just kind of get spun up on X, Y, and Z because of what we anticipate may happen? I, I can tell you from a special forces perspective, this is like your dream come true when you go to do guerrilla warfare. Like that's our bread and butter. That's what we've trained our whole lives to do. And that is the perfect environment to do it. Recruit, train, assist, advise a company, equip. Like that is it. And they're their will to fight, you you see it. It's yeah. not like every, like in Afghanistan, they had all the weapons and the money, but didn't have the will to fight. In Africa, they had more than enough will to fight, but didn't have the weapons and the money. It's frustrating. I wish I could have flip-flopped some of my forces in there, but that environment and those conditions have to be there for you to be successful in the battlefield. In Ukraine, 
those conditions are met. They're there. And a little bit of assistance. Uh, you can already see the guys that we actually did train there, how well they're doing using our equipment, using our tactics. They're doing a phenomenal job. What about on the nonprofit side? Do you anticipate different care regimens or do you anticipate different need of like, hey, we need to prepare because this is going to be a different kind of fight. We're worried about, I don't know, Havana syndrome stuff. Is there anything like that? We're already seeing that right now. We're helping people get up to some of the brain centers for that. But um, honestly, we're, we're, we've got everything we need in place. Okay. We've been doing it for since 2012. Uh, we just need the funding to secure that to get guys through. But the DOD, our medical system, has made some major advancements, obviously, because of the war and those, you know, the learning aspects of what we focused on and what we kind of blew off. It's If you look at the military medical system, it's, it's emergency medicine, it's trauma. Right. Our, our docs are there to keep you in the fight and keep you alive. And if you can't, they get you out of the military. There's no in between there. We're not a health and wellness organization. We are a battle focused machine that you have to be ready to fight. And if you're not, you're out of the machine. And that's one thing a lot of people have a hard time comprehending. It's not that our doctors and our medical care teams don't provide. It's not their mission to do all that other stuff. And what we've done with our human performance and wellness program is pull that away from them. So they're not getting bogged down with it and putting a separate entity at the units that does the health and wellness, where the operational docs can focus on operational medicine. That's planning, training, and operations. That's what they need to do. That's what they're trained to do. They're the best in the world at it. So why do we you know, expect them to do something that's not in their wheelhouse, right? You wouldn't go to a Jiffy Lube to ask to have your car restored, would you? Like you wouldn't do that, right? You go there for a quick service to get it out the door. So it stays on the road. Right. right. But if you need to get that higher level of care, you, you're not going to do it at the operational side. So that's what we're trying to differentiate. And it's been working real good at, at first, you know, they're like, what do you guys, we don't tell us how to do medicine. We're like, we don't, we don't want to do medicine. We don't want to yeah. tell you to do anything. We're trying to take this off your plate so you can focus on you know, keeping the guys in the fight and keeping them ready. Readiness is the priority, right? Yeah. And, and that's it. And then it's black and white. It's binary. <laughs> it's, yeah. can you deploy? Yes or no? That is it. There is no in between on that. So what we're doing at the unit level is the other stuff that's in the gray area, which is when we get back from deployments, we have 18 months to get guys ready again. And that's where we do the health and wellness stuff. I split it up in the easiest form you could ever imagine. So we have army sustainment, right? It's two level maintenance. There's field level maintenance, which is done in the field by the individual. And then you have depot or unit level maintenance, which is done at the unit. And if we teach people how to repair and maintain their own equipment, which is themselves, the human weapons platform, and we can keep it operational and ready all the time, it doesn't have to go to the unit unless it's something that is severe. And so we've already seen a lot of reduction of injury and illness by empowering people to take ownership of health and action, how to, what to make better decisions. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to go into depth on that, but based off what you know from your operational environment, right? That goes, the definition of operational environments, conditions, circumstances, and influences. And if you break that down into composite risk management, it's all those five steps, right? It's identify hazards, assess them, develop controls, implement them, make risk decisions, and continually assess. That is composite risk management. If you teach a person that, you know, our guys, they do it every day to go to the range, to go to training, jump out of airplanes and shoot guns and blow things up, but they don't do it 
for themselves of, Hey, should I drink that bottle of Jack? You know, after coming off the range, they're not making those risk decisions because they're not fully aware of the health effects of their operational environment, which goes back to the first soft uh, imperative, which is understand the operational environment. Yeah. So, and put that with the others. So, and, and, and you guys, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys, I mean, do a lot of holistic and preemptive care as part of that, right? Cause you need that operator yes. level maintenance to be really yeah. be able to, you know, know that, Hey, maybe I need hot yoga, yeah. you know, or something like that. Right. Yeah. So one thing we do, I have what's called the force health protection brief, right? Force protection. I used to be an 18 Fox special forces Intel guy. And force protection was my job. And my job was to go out and look at everything, all the operation mission variables, right? From ECA scope and take all that information, then paint a picture for my guys. So they knew exactly what was in that environment and how it's going to affect their ability to operate. So when we walk off the ramp in that country, we already know what we're walking into. It's not a shock. We know what to expect. We're proactive, not reactive. And we're implementing controls to keep ourselves from getting killed or injured. And that is that mentality. We do it every day, whether a green beret or a seal knows it or not, but that's part of mission planning, it's mission analysis, it, you know, military decision-making process that the op order, right? All those things are beat in your head. It's a language that you should understand. If you're in this community, you apply it to health and wellness and you get the same results. It's proactive, preventative. It facilitates better decision-making and it reduces loss, damage, and injury. Um, I'm laughing because I, I, it just, Cross my mind. Did you ever read that book, uh, The Commandos, that came out in like the early 90s? Yes. I read that before I went to Bud's. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was just remembering back in that book where um, I forget the writer's name. I'm trying to look it up and see if I can multitask. But um, I remember he says uh, at one point, um, I think he was talking about either Delta or maybe it was just SF, but he was, he said something like uh, health conscious commandos can uh, frequently use the salad bar. That was, <laughs> it was, was probably like... the seal part because I mean, when I, when I went in the Navy, went to buds, they gave us a nutrition guide. They were uh, way, way, way ahead of it. But when you're 18, 19 years old, you're like, yeah, whatever. I'm right. I'm not right. going to read that. Cool. Well, I'm, like, I'm just amused about like back in the early nineties, you know, what we considered like, boy, you're really watching your health, you know, and yeah. now how much more advanced it is where it's like, Huh? The salad, but like you're miles past that. And I actually wanted to ask you, like, in your should have paid attention to that book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in your experience, what has been? What's the thing now that the cool kids are doing? What is the? What's the preemptive care? What's the maintenance that you see um, spiking? Is it yoga? Is it meditation? Mindfulness. What's the hot thing? Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. So mindfulness and wearables, and then nutrition. Um, they're getting it. What is that? What's wearables? I don't know. So using a wearable, like a watch that health tracker, you know what I'm saying? Like a Fitbit or so we use the Garmin platforms. We actually got a program at work. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that here, but where we're it's onboard diagnostics. So the term allostasis, right? Adapting to your environment, maintaining balance, your wearables, your body lets off signals through heart rate, variability, respiratory rate, oxygen levels, heart rate, all those things are on there and it's telling your, your watch, how you are interacting with that environment. And based off your norms and everybody else's, the AI can do some machine learning and make it predictable. So based off how your heart variability is, how your recovery is and all those things, are you doing what your body adapting well to this, or is it showing red flags that 
hey man, your heart rate's way too high, your oxygen levels are too low, blood sugar's off, it's going to tell you that, hey, you're setting up for heart attack or cancer or whatever it mm. is. That's where this technology is going. The new generation of kids coming in, they're way more switched on to this type of stuff, biohacking and all those things, and being aware of how stress affects them, what difference between good stress and bad stress, like that, even something so simple like that is huge because yeah. when we came in, we thought we were masters at stress that, you know, that's why we got assessed because we were, we came, grew up stress inoculated. And then when we went into this course, it was like, no one's trying to beat you, kill you, you know, sexually abuse you, slap you around and yell at you. You, you walk through the woods with a compass and a map and it was you against the woods, you know, like we're stress inoculated. That's not a big deal. And then your ability to solve problems under stress and think and work through those things, that's what they're assessing. They're not assessing, they don't give a shit how many push-ups or pull-ups you could do or how fast you run. I'm literally in combat. I've never seen someone win a firefight because they could run a five-minute mile or do 30 pull-ups, right? It was because of what's between their ears that they could be super in tune to that environment. They could keep a level head while things are blown up around them and make sound decisions, and especially in SF, that's what separates our pipelines from everybody else, right? Because I mean, yeah. I went through buds, don't quit. And it wasn't until I got into the education part of buds, I was like, oh crap, I can't, I can't just not quit. I actually have to think and do these right. things, right? Right. And a lot of the pipelines where you just do what you're told and it sucks and you can adapt to, you know, being cold, wet and tired and hungry. That doesn't do anything for the brain when you have to do highly complex problems in highly complex environments. That's that's one thing I learned in the Special Forces Selection Assessment Program going through the Q course. There's a physical and a psychological, and they both have to be at you know optimal levels to get selected and be successful in this organization. You know, Jeff, it strikes me. Yeah, <laughs> first up, I miss talking to you, man. Like it, it's honestly like the book answer. Like you, you have stuff coming out of a holster of, of just a way of thinking and a way of to prescribe. Um, that's why I hired and a mindset. No, listen, it's amazing. It's super <laughs> impressive. Um, but it actually made me think, um, you know, you have an awful lot of experiential knowledge to pass along that obviously you're doing through TFD and, and, and on active duty. But I, I kind of want to pull you back even more into high school kids and kids that might be looking at the military, or maybe aren't looking at the military and should. Who needs to join? Not just the military, and then soft in general. Who, who, what's your recommendation? You've you've now seen the second and third order effects of a life in that line of work. So, what's your advice to folks that may be considering that? This generation needs the why. They need purpose. They need to belong to something, and they need to have a greater sense of belonging and community. Um, we're seeing it now. You know, this kid, I'm, I don't want to go work and do that because I'd rather spend more time outdoors in nature doing things I love to do. I can totally relate. I was that way as a kid. Luckily for me, uh, I did what I always wanted to do since I can remember and it just clicked. But for other kids, they're figuring that out. And based off what they grew up with, observing us with all these endless wars and everything, they're not so apt to go, yeah, I'm just going to go there. Uh, think of where we grew up. It was the 80s. It was the Cold War kill a commie for mommy. I had that shirt going to elementary school, right? We all had a purpose. We all knew who the bad guy was and our country was threat, right? 
good IO on their part, but um, we, we knew like we had to serve. We were patriotic. We loved our country. Yeah. wanted to keep the dream alive. I can remember that since I was born, family of service, my uncles, my dad, my brother, all of us served. And we knew why, because that flag that stands out in front of our house every day, we love our country and we wanted to preserve that for our kids. Um, we're in a little bit of a time period where that's been watered down and diluted, where in schools, they're not teaching that. I'm going to be apolitical here, but they're not teaching the same type of patriotism that we grew up with. And a lot of kids are seeing the United States as the big bad person around the world, right? Um, that's We don't have that sense of duty and patriotism we did when we grew up. It's not there. I don't see it. I work, I coach mountain biking. I do a lot of stuff with youth and they're like, yeah, man, I saw what happened to my dad. Uh, I don't want that to happen to me. And that's why in our programs, both in task force dagger and active duty, I strive to make a proper exit out of the military. I strive to get guys don't leave on a bad foot. Don't leave with a bad taste in their mouth. The majority of military recruits come from military families. No if, and, or but. And if you treat mom and dad like crap on the way out the door, they're not apt to let their kids come in the door. So what we try to do in our programs is show the guys that already got out wounded or injured in the nonprofit side that we've got you from cradle to grave. We're going to take care of you no matter what. This is your family. This is your community. And we're with you every step of the way. And we're taking care of you and your kids, too. On the active duty side, you know, I started a transition program for them three years ago. It's the same thing. I want them to leave on a good foot, you know, proper exit. So when they go back and look at it, they're like, man, I'm glad I made that decision. Um, you know, I, you know, I had a bad taste in my mouth, but the unit took care of me on the way out the door. I've got all these opportunities for me. It was worth it. And if you can do that, then that helps those new generation of kids to make that decision to come in because they know they're going to have that same type of care. Uh, what, what's going on right now in the world? I mean, you'd have to be blind not to see what's happening to the people in Ukraine and not say, hey, I want to help those people. That's why I joined. I want to help. I want to make a difference. You know, I always like to help people. That makes me feel good. Forget about my own crap. But I think everybody can relate to what's happening over there now. And those conversations need to be happening with their kids. I talked to my daughter about it and, you know, and saying, hey, look, like this could obviously have the potential to go further, but it, it's good against evil. And it, it's, it's that simple. And I think as the world figures this out, I think hopefully we go into whatever we go into for an engagement in the future. Anyone doesn't have to be Russian, Ukraine, that we do it for the right reasons. And then yeah. we're more, more aware of those sacrifices we make to our youth. Like, it better be worth it if we're sending people to die. This isn't just so some industry can make a lot of money and then, you know, say thanks and then on to the next one. So I, we're, yeah. People are way more aware than they were 20 years ago, information age. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think if I actually want to raise this with you or not, because I don't want to pimp you out into stuff that's, yeah. you know, outside your lane. But I, I, um, I've been disturbed at some of the things, you know, when I've become more of a consumer of social media than a buyer, than a seller, yeah. it's always a bad thing. And, and kind of cruising around a little bit, I was like, I, I got to get off this because I'm seeing a little too many, a few too many comments that I really disagree with. But I think, let, let me couch it like this. Um, 
I think even with Afghanistan, I understand how Afghanistan and Ukraine are different, but the urge to help and the urge to understand the moral obligations involved with us getting in and follow through on them, I think is noble. And I think sometimes, I don't know, I wonder if, I'll bounce this off you, but I wonder if sometime in the military community, the inherent nobility of what we do kind of is taken for granted by us. And we kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, right, whatever, it's noble. I mean, I guess I'm just doing this and I, you know, this is what I like to do. And, you know, I like get my sweat on or whatever. But I think it's important to emphasize, to message that, no, I mean, going out and trying to help people, and yes, that sometimes means having to hurt other people, is an inherently noble task. Um, and there is a difference. Not all war is equal. Not all violence is equal. It depends why you're doing it. You know, if I push an old lady in front of a bus and you push the old lady out of the way of the bus, technically we both pushed an old lady around. Yep. Very different, you know, second order effects of that. So, so I, I feel like sometimes with the with the weight of the twenty year war, I, I feel like sometimes military folks are just going, uh, getting reflexively anti any conflict as opposed to weighing. Is it worth it? And is is the second order effect worth it? I'm glad you said that. When I first came in, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I just wanted to go to war. And then when you get old enough and you start seeing the people come on your team that could be the age of your kids, you start thinking a lot more in depth about that sacrifice. And when you have your own kids, especially, um, that changes you. And I look at it now watching, I mean, think about Russia, right? A lot of these people got pushed over those borders, had no idea what they were getting into, and were conscripted, pulled out of schools, friggin' warehouses, and said, get in this tank, get in this truck, and drive. And young kids, that'll never see their families again. I see that. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's the age of my kid. And that that weighs on you. Be like, this sucks for both sides. And it's, I, I hate to say this, but when you're used to fighting in a completely different demographic of people that are completely counterculture to you, it's easier to dehumanize that. And what's happening in Russia right now, in Ukraine, these people are cut from the same cloth. A little bit of differences, but they speak the same language, right? They look the same. A lot of them, their allegiances are the same. It's like the civil war. They're killing their own people. And that has to weigh on them a hundred times more than what we did in the Middle East. Um, that, that's pretty rough. I've, I've thought about that as I'm watching all these, I've seen, I've got all the feeds for all these things. I'm just like, man, this is horrible. And you can see these kids that have yeah. been captured, you know, they're like, yeah. I had no idea what the hell I'm doing here. How are you feeling? I mean, I, I, let me couch this by saying, by kind of telling you where I'm at. I thought I was getting out, you know, I was the second to last rotation to get, get out of Afghanistan. So I was like, all right, man. Hey, war's done. Oh, they took all my wars away from me. I'm done. I, I'm, I'm good. Now I'm like, motherfucker. I, I don't want to say I have FOMO, but yeah. there was a sense of like, oh, Jesus, come on, man. I thought I thought we could do kind of a, a, a peace lap, not a victory lap, maybe, but at least like just yeah. chill for a minute. Now it's like, oh, God, there's this still hanging out over our heads. So how are you feeling with all that? I'm indifferent. Like I said, if I mean, if this thing escalates past the borders of Ukraine, you know where it's going, right? Yeah. That's one of those things where, okay, do I want to die in that continent or this continent? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. what can I do for my family to make sure they can go out the best way as possible? Or that's reality, man. Like I've, I've seen all these people prepping for all this crap and I'm like, dude, 
what do you want to be alive for an extra three days till you die of radiation poisoning? Like, I'm not even going to stress it. I'm not going to worry about it. I know how to take care of myself and my family. I tell my brothers that all the time, like, well, we got to do something like there's nothing you can do. If it goes to that next level, it's yeah. unprecedented. We've never seen it before. And I don't know if I want to be alive on the planet when it's like that. Um, but I mean, if we go to that war, you know how they fight. Yeah. This isn't Abu flip-flop yeah, in the yeah, desert yeah. in a cave. This is tactical nuclear weapons, chemical, biological, like no holes barred. They will use everything in their arsenal to win or go out and let you have it on the way out the door. Scorched earth. They're not going to just capitulate. So, I mean, and and I know, I know you guys with all your work on toxic exposures and all that, I mean, you know, as well as I do, you know, like in Afghanistan, you know, we, we were still paying a price for Soviet toxic exposures that they left there. I got thallium in me. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's so, I mean, you even even just the the collateral damage that they do by the nature of their warfare yeah yeah i don't know man i mean um yeah i it's funny it, you know i never thought i'd see war in europe in my lifetime um and to see it like this is um stunning i know that's a point of dispute whether or not ukraine is europe but leave that aside on that continent or yeah. on that landmass, I should say, um, but that it's, it's a it's it's jarring. Um, let me just, while we're on the subject, I'll throw it out here, answer this as much or as little as you feel like, but um, the geopolitical situation now regarding Taiwan seems even more precipitous and that it could easily be a world war and, a, and, and a two front conflict um, in two very different environments again, if China so chose. Right. Is that, I mean, again, it's not one of those things you and I can affect, but I mean, what's your head with that or what's, what's your takeaway with it? I'm going to simplify this in the most easiest form. When you have nuclear weapons, you have that negotiating, you don't have to negotiate. Yeah. If, if China takes Taiwan, are we willing to go to nuclear war because of a little island? That's it. Ukraine is are we willing to go to nuclear war to defend ukraine that's where we're at that's why iran wants a nuclear weapon yeah because once you have that you can hold the world hostage i want this or i will do that okay that's where we're at and 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 it's scary because it's scary because it doesn't favor the good guys i mean we have nuclear weapons but we're not going out and taking the world hostage with them and that's a big difference and they use it against us and they know our weakness and that's I mean, I'm not praising any dictator or anything, but they know what they have. And that's why North Korea got nukes. That's why Pakistan yeah. got nukes. And it's the same people that helped them get nukes that are helping Iran get nukes. Yeah. We're probably going to witness this in the next couple of years when they say, hey, I've got a nuke. And then they hold that entire region hostage. And then there's no more negotiating. They're going to take what they want and use that. Hey, if, if you interfere, I'm going to launch a nuke. So. We're at that point right now where cool heads need to prevail. And we have to put those things on the scale is that little island in the South China Sea worth a nuclear war? And is that place in Europe or like we said, (laughs) Western Asia, I'll leave it at that. Is that worth having a nuclear war over? And at this point, we're so close. It it could be one bad mistake away, one incident away from that happening. And I think that's what most people don't realize. Like, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm a realist that if we escalate this thing, 
it probably go conventional for a little bit until someone started getting their nose bloodied. And then it would come down to a point where either they keep steam rolling through Europe and take it all. We watched this happen in World War II, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're watching it happen again. I used to ask all the time when I was a kid, how the hell did they allow Hitler to go so far so fast? I completely understand it now. I, I right. see it. Right. Be- because nobody wanted to get crushed like they saw yep. Poland get crushed. So they said, okay, he won't, he won't come in here. He won't come in here. And then France, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. But we're, we're witnessing history repeat itself right now. Like I see that happening again, Moldova, Poland, Romania. Um, you probably, he'll probably take anything that doesn't have a NATO flag on it. Well, and, and that's the, that's the problem, right? And I'm glad you brought up World War II, because I do feel like we have a lot of Chamberlains running around and that used to be more of a slur than it is right now. <laughs> but I think understanding what, what Chamberlain was doing, when, when, how happy he was to say peace in our time, because yeah. he thought he had struck an agreement with Hitler and instead, you know, it was just appeasing what was going to be inevitable. And whether that stand is in Ukraine or Taiwan or if it ends up being, you know, France or, or Netherlands or something again, you know, where, where does it stop and, and how do we actually make it stop? I, I want to circle that back to what we were talking about before with the um, with the kids, with the, the kids that are going to grow up in this and uh you know, as we both have kids, uh, you know, it's, it's jarring and it's, um, I can't help but get worked up just thinking about, you know, bringing kids into this world with the way it is right now. And I, I guess, let me, I'm, I'm fishing for a question. I have a lot of statements, but I'm trying not to, <laughs> to make them. Um, I, I, I feel like, I, I do feel like America is the last best hope in many respects. I, I don't want to say completely because I, I don't know everything, but I, I do think it in many respects it is the last best hope. And I do think that one of the biggest things harming America is the lack of gratitude among Americans for what America does do well and how harmful that is to our national security posture. No, absolutely. And I know that's what it's we're talking about mistake. before, right? It's not by yeah. mistake. It's not. We know the yeah. long game, right? Hybrid warfare, China, Russia, they know they don't have to ever put a bullet or a bomb in this country if they can weaken down and dumb down the youth. What do you think TikTok is? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, look at yeah. it. They don't have the same stuff in China and Russia the same way we do have it here. Right. Why do you think Russia just pulled their social media and TikTok and all those things to control the narrative? Right. And China's laughing every day. Well, our kids are more into I'm just going to leave it at dumb stuff. Right. And they're so addicted to it that they're not going outside. They're not learning. They're not becoming resilient. And they're more, it's that affirmation, right? And they know, they know exactly what they're doing, conditioning kids from a young age to be basically fragile and to be super sensitive and break at the first sign of any type of adversity. And we're witnessing it. I see it all. Suicides are skyrocketing. So for for males aged 10 to 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the United States. Second leading cause of death. Guess what the first leading cause of death is for kids that age? It's opioids, right? Fentanyl. Um, and where um, do you think 95% um, of the world's fentanyl comes from? Yeah. China, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So military age males that are the future of this country are dying by suicide and fentanyl at astronomical rates. It's genocide. And no one has said crap about it. It's all coming out of Mexico through our border here, killing our youth, killing them, destroying them, brainwashing them with social media, 
killing them with poison, right? And making them fragile. Uh, it, I, don't, I don't know who's in charge of our national security. If they're listening, like if you can't see this, you, you're in the wrong career yeah. field. Yeah. I, I see it clear as day. China's killing us through hybrid warfare uh, by destroying our youth. That's our base. And, and if you look yeah. look around the rest of the world, look at Africa, the youth explosion, yeah. the, like 90% of the population is under the age of 24, right? They have no allegiance to anybody. These kids are growing up with social media. Yeah. And yeah. you know what I'm saying? You lose your roots. You lose that base, that connection to your history. You're done as a nation. Your identity's gone. You're wiped. And these kids will do anything for instant gratification. I'm not saying our youth in the United States is all like that, but we're headed there well because it's natural because it's natural right i mean it's not it's not nothing inherently wrong with them it's that this is human nature and it's being called and 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 uh directed in that way and not not to mention i mean i'm you're going deeper than i was prepared (laughs) to go but i mean you're you're right about this psychological conditioning i even just on a more uh you know i don't know tactical level i guess uh, i mean just the information gathering that that china gets for those that aren't listening, I don't know if we've talked about it on the show, but China, but TikTok is, a, a, you know, owned Chinese by government, China, the China's Chinese government, communist government. So when you're on there and if you don't know about Chinese facial recognition and the, what they do with that, or if you're on Instagram and you use those face finders where, hey, find the celebrity that you look like and all that, all those kind of things, that's just picking up your data. There are nefarious entities that are involved in getting that information. It's a passive collection tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. 1000%. People get bored, go look up LifeLog. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. But China's, they've got it down to a science social credit system. They know by every interaction emoji you make, everything you do, who's loyal to the party and who's not. It's like 1984. And they're mastering it. They've got it dialed in predictability. They know how people are going to act based off their patterns of life and behavior for the last three years. Um, that's massive. So, now that I'm bumming us out and everyone listening out, <laughs> let let me let me try to let me try to reverse course or at least provide okay. some solutions. And let me let me I'll ante up. I think my sense is, I mean, I sound like Whitney Houston, but the future is the children. <laughs> so uh, yeah. okay, fair enough. Um, to me, the biggest thing that we can do, and this is just my take, and I'll let you uh, raise the ante as you see fit. The biggest thing we can do is instill a sense of gratitude in our kids to appreciate what's around them, that that change that happens in the family at at the dinner table um, gets in, in, it kind of instills in them that sense of worth of what they could defend and what they should defend and that there's value, that there are things worth fighting for. And this is what right is and this is what wrong is and not everything is open to moral relativism. Um, What do you I'm glad you said that. One, parents need to be parents. They don't need to be someone just sits there and pays their kid's phone bill and puts them in front of an Xbox. They need to teach them shit. They can't just say, hey, it's it's the school's responsibility to teach you everything. It's the TV and social media. Is, we got to get away from that, dude. It, it's eroding yeah. our children. It's killing them. And, you know, I've seen parents try to be friends with their kids. That doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in New England, you know, pretty traditional town, traditional family. You want to call it that? My dad wasn't my friend. My dad's job was to make sure I was successful when I grew up and wasn't, you know, depending on my parents or anybody else for the rest of their life. He instilled that in my family from a very young age that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And the only person stopping you from being successful is yourself. 
Um, that stuck with me, obviously, where I am and what I've done. But I try to instill that in my daughter. Like, don't depend on anybody. Don't, you know, find the good man that pays your way through life. Not going to happen. You know, find, you know, someone's going to pay for your college. Too. No, that's not happening with my daughter. I want her to be independent and not have to depend on another figure comfortable that that's not not even in the curriculum in my family yeah yeah and i'm setting her up for success and she's I, she always like dad why do you always give me these stupid lessons but i used to say the same thing to my father and then when i was mature enough to see it i was like oh my god my dad grew up dirt poor in east harlem uh seven seven kids in a one bedroom flat apartment in east harlem and he was like i'm out of here he's the only one in his family to leave the city and he showed us that he was the most generous. He took care of his entire family and all of our, basically our town was like a halfway house. Like he took in everyone's kids that were troubled and wow. gave them something, right? Like everyone in the town was like, Mr. D, Mr. Dardia, you know, like he took me in when my parents didn't take care of me. He taught me the lessons my parents didn't teach me. Ask anyone that grew up in my town, the same thing. And you weren't afraid of the cops. If you did something stupid, you get that disappointed dad talk, right? And we're missing that. Like I see it all the time. Like the mom and dad both work. It's the latchkey kids, right? Yeah. When we were latchkey kids, we had BMX bikes and we played war. We shot ourselves with BB guns and, you know, we did all those things outside and we built some independence, but now it's sit on TikTok, sit on YouTube, watch yeah. videos, lit, never see the sunlight. I can't go outside. It's, it's gross. It's too hot. I'm too tired. I, I feel so horrible for these kids because you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's their fault, but when we grew up, we didn't even have the opportunity to be playing super no friendo 24 yeah. seven, right? Like we had to be outside and your parents like, get the hell out of here. So, I mean, it's just these kids that we're responsible. It's not these kids. Fault. Yeah. It's not them. Yeah. That's we right. are their parents, right? Everyone always says all these millennials are turds or whatever. Who do you think raised those millennials? Yeah. Right. Generation X. And I like look in the mirror, dude, don't look out the window and point your finger at these kids. It's the parents. It starts at the house. Every habit you build, your resilience, you know, your resolve, your patriotism, that starts in the household. And if your kid grows up, you know, stuck in front of a propaganda box, what do you think is going to happen and how they're going to think and act? And that school they go to where they're pushing this information, they they don't stand a chance. It, yeah. it really is the parent's responsibility. And if the parents are not that, not the best examples, then you know, hopefully they got a good coach in their sports or something. That's what we try to impart to the kids we coach and work with. But in our community, we don't have that problem. But outside of this community at Fort Bragg, it is a problem. I see it where I grew up in Maine. Um, it's horrible. You know, it's, I talked about this with uh, Jen and Tom Satterley and, um, and it, everything you're saying reminds me of it. I think one of the most painful things to me is when military folks, when, when they start to fall apart, when their marriage starts to fall apart, when their family starts to fall apart, because generally folks you meet in the militaries, their values are right. But coping with whether it's stress, whether it's um, you know logistical hurdles, whether it's just the absence of being away because of you know war and deployments and what have you, um, the damage that that does to families is a real What's the opposite of force Sick. multiplier, so, For, force yeah, divider, basically, yeah. because because what it ends up doing is is the kids that should that should be closest, your most inner circle, and getting yeah. the best experiential wisdom passed on to them are, are not. And now I'm are, glad you said that. Secondary, secondary PTSD, right? Secondary yeah. PTS. 
Yeah. Um, when we're wounded or injured, the entire family's affected. And that's what separates us. I'll talk about Task Force Dagger is that separates us from every other organization out there. We're family based. And when we take care of mom and dad, we take care yeah. of the kids. It's a whole unit. And we don't just send you away for a couple of days at a retreat, go and shoot some guns, hunting and do all those things. If you don't change that home environment, you're going to revert right back to where you started. So the entire environment and lifestyle needs to change. When we send people to Cleveland Clinic, we teach them about lifestyle and environmental modification to make that home a more conducive environment to healing, recovery, and growth, right? Resilience. I'll hammer this away. Resilience just doesn't mean you can take abuse. It means you can take abuse and move forward after the abuse, right? Bounce back and move forward. It doesn't mean stagnate, live in the past, be a professional victim. You know, you can be bitter or you can be better. That's why I always like to tell mm -hmm. people, but you got to, that's being resilient, being an operator and being resilient is that you get your shit pushed in and then you get back up and then you thrive. You get over it and you move forward and you learn from it. You don't dwell on the past. And if your kids see you do that, what do you think they're going to end up like if they're constantly living in the past and yeah. blaming everybody else for their problems, right? And, and that's my dad always said, you know, failure is always one excuse away. You can, yeah. either, you can either find an excuse or you can find a way, find a solution, right? If you blame everybody else, you're never going to get anywhere in life. And when I was young, I, I, I got into that mindset. And then when it clicked, I'm like, oh my God, dude, I'm, I'm my biggest obstacle. I'm the only one preventing me from doing everything I want to do, not anybody else. And it was like, accelerated the speed of like every door opened in my life. And I was just like, wow, you know, that lesson is right there. And if you can impart that in your kids at a young age, right? Because if you constantly tell them they suck, they're not good as you were this generation, and you just put that negativity in there and always set them up for, you know, blame everybody else, they're never going to grow you know, spiritually, psychologically, physically, they're going to always use an excuse of why they can't do something. You know, you, uh, while you're saying that, it makes me think of what we talked about last time you were on, you know, if you had stopped after buds, you know, you would have had, I would have been perfectly, dead. well, you'd have had a perfectly decent <laughs> story. Like you could have walked into any bar and gone, no shit. There I was, I went through all this. Yeah. This shit didn't work out or whatever, but you know, and, and, and you, you know, a lot of people make hay off just that. The fact yeah. that you, to that point of resilience, didn't yeah. stop there and recovered and then pushed forward. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the perfect example. Uh, I, that was the example. Like, I, I would have been dead. I would have killed myself or end up being a friggin' thank God I never liked drugs or alcohol or anything like that and didn't have an addictive personality, but I was in a path of self-destruction. That's why I left California. You want to talk about the worst place to be when you're in that mind frame? Because <laughs> everything's yeah. free and everything's available and everything's fun and everything's fast. And I was like, I need to get out of here and go back to my roots. And it took me a few years to get back on my feet, get my head straight. But after that, I was in, I was unstoppable. There's nothing that was ever going to stop me ever again in my life. What would have, what would have dragged you down? Would it have been guilt? Would it have been resentment? Would it have been missed opportunity? What was the quality? Would, would it just been laziness? What would it, what was it that would have drug you down ultimately had you not kept pushing forward? No, I mean, it was just that I don't know how you say it. it's that feeling of incompleteness and emptiness. Yeah. That was like, but I tell everybody, you know, I even told my mom death or graduation, I'm not coming home. <laughs> um, and that's, I tied, well, that's one of the lessons I teach people coming into this organization, have a backup plan. Cause I didn't have one. Like, you know what I mean? It was death yeah. or graduation. There wasn't, Oh, I'll go do this instead. It was, that was it. So when that got ripped out for me a few weeks before graduating, that hurt, right? That was like, that was my PTS. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have just, you know, got to graduation, then told somebody or, you know, I shouldn't have gone to that doctor's appointment when they found all that stuff. And I wouldn't have known whatever it was, shoulda, woulda, coulda every day, you know, like yeah. I should be there with my brothers. I got ripped out of that environment. You tied your identity, you know, that trident burning in your chest that is not there, but you can see it. Right. Cause that's what gets you through all that misery. Like going through that training, <laughs> you have to be able to separate your mind and your body. And it happens when you're in it. And anybody who's been through buds or especially hell week will tell you that like, you just have to be willing to sacrifice everything to get to your end state, to get to your goal. And then from there, that's when the building starts, right? Just be, just because you know your mind can go further than your body doesn't mean you can be a successful Navy SEAL or a Green Beret right. or anything. You have to apply that to everything you do, but also know where you're breakable and not breakable, right? That's that bouncing back and moving forward. And a lot of guys use, I use that mentality to push me through things a lot of times where I got myself in bad situations because I didn't say, hey, maybe I should not push myself through that, right? I carried that mentality after I left the Navy into everything else I did as far as physically, right? I'll, I don't need to sleep. I'm, I don't know if it was just the insomnia or me being able to stay awake for days at a time, but I'd go days without sleeping. I'd be like, that's awesome. I can go five days. I can go yeah, six days. Yeah. And I look back at it now. I'm like, Man, you're a dumbass. <laughs> like, like, I don't need to do those things to prove how tough I am. Right. Like you grow up and you mature and you realize, but you know, in the back of your mind, you can do all those things. It sets you up for success for the rest of your life. Knowing you can push yourself that far bounce back. Right. So when I, when I graduated the Q course, I didn't have any, I was not looking in the rear view mirror ever again. Like I was done that. Right. I, yeah. that, that situation went from a traumatic event in my past to a learning event in my past and growth event in my past, where I could use that as a teaching tool to help other people and myself knowing I went through all that. I'm good now. And, and that's where you grow. That's that, you know, that, that growth mindset comes in. And that's what I like to teach people. How much do young men need the suck, need, need some struggle when you're young and you're a man? Yeah. So think about a tree, right? If a tree grows up in a vacuum, but the root's going to be strong. Yeah. I mean, think about that, right? That's why trees with in windy environments have stronger root bases and stronger wood because they can take that abuse. They can take the, you know, the environmental challenges. And if we raise our kids in a vacuum where everyone gets a trophy, you know, there's no winner, everyone's a winner and there's no competition and there's no physical or mental, you know, stimuli in that environment, you're not going to be a strong, resilient person. We're setting people up for success. There's that old saying in the military, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war. Apply that to everything. The more you experience as a kid, it's going to set you up for being an adult. And that's why a lot of the people that come into our organization came from some type of resilient uh, background when they grew up, whether it was competitive sports, family environment, or you know where they lived, living in Alaska or whatever. They were used to the elements. They were strong. They had some type of resilience before they came in and can make decisions under that, right? And what, the, go yeah, ahead. Sorry, sorry, no, I was going to ask, because um, I was talking about it with somebody recently on the show. I can't remember who. I apologize. Um, but that study that showed the divorce rates of folks in SOF, that, that most uh, SOF pipeline graduates have, I forget what the percentage is, but such a high percentage of them come from divorced uh, families. Oh yeah. What, what do you Divorced, think about that? Do abusive. you think that's the resilient? Do you think that's yeah? That's they're they're finding the resilience. Yeah. yeah so think about it. this, right? So why do a lot of 
why do a lot of people join the military? Because a sense of community, belonging, and safety, mm-hmm. right? Oh, they never okay. want to be vulnerable, helpless, hopeless ever again, right? They want that protective net. Um, and do you think that feel, there's also something about proving themselves? Yeah, 1,000%. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, we used to, I saw that when I was going through BUDS. Like, some people wanted to be commandos, and that's all they wanted did. And some people wanted to prove themselves, get out, write a book, and start a company and say, I'm a Navy SEAL every five minutes. A lot of friends over there, but like <laughs> we saw, I saw way more in the Navy than I did in the Army. But in the Army, it's the 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 silent professional. Just the more you suck, the better of an operator you are because you don't need any help from anybody. You can be totally poor and homeless, and that means you're a badass operator. So right, I'm going right, both right. sides of that spectrum. Right. But I absolutely see it, 110. Um, percent Yes, a lot of people come in to prove themselves. Those are usually the ones that do four years and get out. Um, and I've been in the same unit for almost 20 years now. And a lot of the guys I work with have been in that unit for 20 years that don't care about any of the other stuff. They love doing what they do. Um, and then like when I went through selection, there were guys that said, I'm here because I don't want to be in my other unit. I want to put my hands yeah. in my pockets and wear sunglasses. Right. Yeah. And then some guys, I want to be a commando and I want to go do commando shit with my commando friends. <laughs> and so you have a mix of everybody, but the guys that usually lasted out, you know, 20 plus years, Love doing what they're doing. They came in to do that from, you know, childhood. They wanted to be an army guy. So, um, I mean, I guess the only caveat I'll throw out that the all that sounds, sounds matches up with my, my experience. The only thing I want to throw out there is the, um, obviously the op tempo changes, right? I mean, so that even if you stay in the unit for 20 years, I know for me, I didn't, besides the fact they took all my wars away from me, there was also a sense of, at this point, I'm going to be a manager if I'm if I stick around and that doesn't interest me as much. So yeah. there is something about the op tempo changing too, right? Yeah, um, I can tell you what when the op tempo was six on six off, it, it made it easier because I'm, I was never a garrison trooper, right? I hated garrison worse. I, you could keep me deployed for six years; I'd be way happier than spending six months, you know, being in red cycle and all the taskings and schools. That's where I stressed out, and that's where I was adapted for war, high stress, high threat, black and white environment. But coming back, that's not why I joined. I didn't join uh, to go to school. Like yep. I would have, I would have stayed in college if that's what I wanted. But I know why professional development is so important. But like we were talking about, it's like OJT. We learned a lot on the battlefield. But I will go back to you have to be a you have to have the basics down, right? I used to battle with yeah. one of my old team sergeants all the time about that. But I understand as I got older in the in, in the organization, why it was important because you have to be able to support yourself doing everything and you can't be relying on support people. And when you come back, if things aren't being trained and managed and I'll go to ammo forecasting and all the stuff we don't like to do, if that is jacked up, it paralyzes you with operations and training. So you absolutely have to be a good gear trooper. Uh, but on that note, you'd be a gear trooper in a, a area where you, you have passion about and you're interested in because you're going to be more effective at that job. But putting people into schooling or education they have zero interest for, or just because you need that slot filled hurts us in the long run. Instructors, for example, right? I'm going to take that turd and make him an instructor. Now he's going to impart his turdism on every student coming through right. that pipeline. And then you're going to have a turd show up at your team and it's going to impact operations and training. So that's something that needs to be looked at and fixed. It, it, yeah. I hope we're getting there. 
but you know, not in the Navy. The Navy was complete opposite with that, by the way. Oh, really? I got to see, yeah, being a buds instructor is like you fight for that. That's like a pride thing. That's that's a, like a, a mark of excellence to be a buds instructor. And I, I never had a buds instructor that was a turd. I can tell you that those dudes were studs. And you know, I don't know if it was my age and didn't know any better, but you know, you never doubted one thing those dudes told you or, you know, questioned their, what you did, whatever the hell they told you to do. And they led by example, whether it be PT running, shooting, whatever it was, they were on top of it. So, and then coming into Q course, when we first went through, it was, it was pretty good, but I've seen it watered down after the 18 years, whatever I've been over there, 19 years. So how does that work in your experience? How did that work with a family? Because obviously you're getting that mindset, you're getting, you know, you're, there's so much personal development that's happening and so much appreciation of competence that very few civilians are going to appreciate, no matter how much they love you, like, okay, dude, decaf, like I, I, I can't like go at that pace the whole time. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, how did that, how was that transition for you kind of finding a way to manage that. And, and at the end of the day, now looking back, do you think the military really is a young man's game and specifically a single man's game, you know, because it just the toll it can take on the family? Um, I, there's two parts of that, right? So when you're young, like I made sure that I made better decisions going into that environment. And like, I, I know when I had, when I had my only child, like I got shot in the helmet, got two near ambushes in one day came back from that deployment. I was like, oh, it's time to have a kid because I already, you already accept your own death pretty much, but you're like, I want to do this before I know what the risk is now, right. After going through that type of stuff. But what you want to do is I did it. I didn't want my daughter to grow up understanding when daddy's gone all the time. I'd rather do it when she was one, two, three years old. Yep. And then yep. when she's older and knows what's going on that I'm telling you right now, my last deployment with her when I'm at green ramp waving goodbye was not the same as the one-year-old, yeah. two-year-old. Right. Yep. And for me on her first birthday, I literally blew out a candle with her and then went to green ramp and flew to Afghanistan on her first birthday. I got a picture of it. And I'll, for me, that was crushing for her. She, yep. Candle cake. Cool. That guy with that weird <laughs> beard on his face, he's gone. Right. See him in a year. Right. Yeah. And yeah. build that relationship with that six months, you're home and do it again. But I can tell you right now, if I left her being 14, that's not going to be the same. Yeah. Right. So that's huge. And that's where having a solid family with a solid spouse that can make that transition seamless for them and, you know, expectation management of what daddy does, right? Like my daughter until a few years ago, really had no idea what I did. Daddy's in the army, right? Had no idea, no clue what a green beret was or any of these schools or MOSs that I had, she had no idea. Did she want to know or was she uh, just kept in the dark or was she not curious? No, it wasn't one of those things where like, guess what your daddy does. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it was, yeah. she knew daddy was in the army and he did cool things and he had fun friends, you know, and all those things, but she didn't really understand what special forces was and what we did and to what extent. And the skill set that goes along with that being a dad uh, you can imagine when the daughter figures out like, Hey, if I want to know what you're doing, I'm going to know like that type of stuff. Now she's older. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm not getting anything over on you. You know, like she gets it now. She's starting to, she's 14. So. 
So, so that's kind of the Liam Neeson moment, right? Where I have a yeah. particular set of skills developed over a long life, and and that's kind of the, the that's kind of the fantasy. That's kind of the the what's so sexy about that movie? I think to so many guys is that you finally can tell your family what you did and have that be fully appreciated and acknowledged. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of guys trigger to in that. But for but for you, did you find that was um, that that did get the reaction? And, and by reaction, I mean really the appreciation that you wanted or, or was it kind of irrelevant? I, I did, honestly, I'd, I'd never want her to associate with me being that I want her to see dad, not the mm. green bright. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't care. She'll figure it out when she gets older, as she gets older, but I didn't want her to be like, Oh, my dad's a green bright. She, she didn't even know what that was until a couple of years ago. Yeah. And now that you like, I do a lot of events with the foundation and she's starting to meet all these other people. Like, you want to talk about humbling some of the people we have in our organization that are like the history books are written about. And she's starting to figure these out, who these people are and what they did. She's like, Holy crap. Like, she's like, wow. Like that person is in that, you know, article or that book or whatever it is. She's starting to see that now and be like, Holy God, like this isn't just, you know, thank you for your service and get your vet hat and home Depot. Right. She's starting to see that these are pretty influential people in the world. Um, admirals, generals, all these people. Right. And she's like, Holy crap. Like she's starting to see the extent of the depth uh, of what our community does. And she way more appreciation of it, but not like, Oh dad, you know, you're the, you're a green break. She doesn't ever do that. She's very humble herself. Well, that's, that's a great quality. Uh, How easy was that for you to leave the green beret outside the house? Did you really? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I like, most people don't even know I'm in the army still. Right. Like a lot of my mountain bike coach mountain biking, these kids have no idea what I do. They don't, I wear, I have camouflage pants, but I'm not, they don't know me as the master sergeant. They know me as Jeff that rides wheelies across the bridges and jumps off stuff. Right. I don't advertise that. I don't, that's not who I am. But I don't want to be remembered as that. What, what about even just your demeanor or your level of expectations, especially when you were at high op tempo, did, did you, <laughs> Would would you come back and go? Oh shit! I'm still, you know, I'm still 80 miles an hour. I gotta, I gotta downshift. That, yeah, she sees that. Uh, as she gets older, she, I'm on the like, I might as well implant a phone on me because it's the 2 a.m. phone calls. It's every phone call uh, I get is usually worst case scenario, suicide. Yep. You know, like cancer. She hears that a lot. That that makes me nervous because then she's like, shit. You know, like you know, she's heard those conversations. She's seen my public speaking. She knows what I teach. And that's always been a word for me, like a manifestation of, you know, doom and gloom. You know, I I don't like to do that. I like to show her the success stories, right. Where people have overcome these things and gone forward and built, rebuilt those relationships with their families and they're out doing stuff. That's what one of the events we do, the dagger dive where that's huge. She sees the reintegration of family after overcoming missing limbs and addictions and suicidal ideation. Cause these people get up and give testimonials with tears coming out of their eyes, 20, 20 year operators. Right. And she gets to see that other side that nobody ever gets to see. Right. And, uh, you know, most people look at operators and all this stuff. They don't see what goes along with being an operator. They right. see the cool guy shit. Right. They don't see the divorces, the dependent, you know, dependency on everything. And they don't see, you know, people when they lose their identity, being an operator, how much it affects them. And I've done a good job of not bringing, like, I don't tie any of my life or what I like doing to just being an operator. They're, you're not going to come in my house and see cool guy stuff everywhere. Right. I've got my trophy, uh, 
little case with all the cool stuff I brought back from overseas, but it's not like uh, how many people did you shoot or any stupid shit like that. Like, I don't, that's not my life, dude. I don't care about that. I'm that's in my rear view mirror. I'm looking forward. So I don't need to tie any of those things or having a kit always out, you know, and 15 guns on me all the time. I don't need that shit. What's the, what's the predominant quality that you need to be a successful family man and be successful in the soft community? Be a dad, not a dick. Don't, don't be the, the Sergeant major at home. You know what I'm saying? Be the person that, you know, you want to inspire people and lead them, right? You want them to do what's right. Not because they have to, because they want to be good in your eyes. And that's something I clung on to in my military career. I, I saw a lot of people were leaders on paper and they used coercion, you know, intimidation and fear to lead people. If you don't do that, you're going to this or, you know, I don't have to get into that. But and then I saw the people like, you don't have to tell me anything. I would, I would follow you to the gates of hell because of who you are. And you don't have to tell me, I want to do good things for you. And that's what I want my kid to do. Not because she's afraid of dad, but because she wants to do good and, you know, have dad, you know, appreciate her and acknowledge her for those things. I always tell her every week, man, you're the most important thing in my life. And, you know, I'm proud of you. I I make sure I say that as much as possible. I go to all her events, her concerts and do everything. And I try to make it about her, not about me. Right. Like mountain bike. He's just like, dad, all you want to do is kayak, mountain bike, ski and surf and all those things. And I was like, yeah, I love doing those. But if, if you want to go do art and paint and do crafts, she's an artist, loves to paint and stuff. I was like, I'll go do that with you. And I try to make more of an effort to do that because I can't expect her, you know, I'm 45 years old, but she sees me on a mountain bike and skiing and surfing and doing all those things. That's not the 45 year old typical dad. Right. <laughs> so yeah. 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 She sees that and is like, dad's not a cripple old dude. Like he's out getting it and getting after it and she can't keep up with me. And, and she's just like, Holy God, like I want that to stick in her. So as she gets older, who she sees, you know, as a relationship potential partner in the future yeah, that you better have a standard, right. And like lead by example, I'll go back to that. We'll circle up, circle back <laughs> and go back to that lead by example and not be the guy that you just do it because you have to, I parent her and try to show her the good in everything I do and to give forward. Like my dad was the same way. He'd give the, you know, he give you the coat off his back. And then she's a helper too. It's in her genes. And she's already going there at school. She's always trying to help people stick up for people being bullied and doing all that. So it's working. I just, like I said, the resilience part is what I worry about with this new generation, but I try to teach her like what I've been through, what my friends have been through, what she can be you know, going through and overcome and move forward. That's the big thing I got to get planted in her, her head at a young age is to be able to bounce back and move forward that resilience and expect hardships, expect it to be difficult. How much would it be different if you had a son? What would you do differently? Would there be different lessons? Would it be a different um, source of emphasis? Or do you think you do things almost identically? I, I think it actually would have been more difficult to have a son because you expect a son to do more man things, right? Mm. Like, it's like, it's kind of like the legacy you got more to live up to, especially being an only child. Um, and I never, if I had, I don't expect my daughter to be a green brain, jump out of airplanes and be combat diver. You know what I'm saying? Right. Way less expectation with that. I just want her to be happy, have purpose in her life, have meaning in her life, 
and be fulfilled and not feel obligated to do them just to impress me. You know, I want, I want her to have that passion, but she also needs to have that end state and that goal and that purpose in life to get out of bed every day and overcome those challenges. So I, I think it's been easier. I obviously I want a son to go do all those things where it makes a lot right. funner when you can mountain bike and, but I've got her, she's dive qualified. <laughs> she can bike. She's really good at it and doesn't think she is, but she kayaks and you know, like fishing and doing all that stuff. Uh, she, she's one of those, I told you, she's very humble. She doesn't see how talented she is. She speaks fluent Russian, you know, holy crap. Yeah. So she's bilingual since, since she was born and she has all those skills and, but she undersells herself, doesn't see it yet. So Wait, that's kind where of did cool. the Russian come from? Did she just her want mom. to learn Russian or oh, her mom's Russian? Yeah. Really? Yep. Jeez. Wow. Not from Estonia, but ethnic Russian. Gotcha. That grew up in Estonia, but yeah. Teaches that's soft awesome. Russian. Yeah. So she has that. Her grandmother taught her as a kid and her mom just kept it going. So it's, that is going to stick with her for the rest of her life. Talk about job opportunities oh, right now, right? hundred percent. percent. She's my translator. I got Pashto in Arabic and Spanish. So she's my turf for, <laughs> if I see a video or something on, you know, telegram or something like, Hey, translate this. Or, what are they saying? Yeah. And or if Red Dawn happens, she, she can, yeah. Be your go between. Yeah. She'll be my turp. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, so. Listen, man, you're, you've been hugely generous with your time, so I don't want to keep you forever, but I do want to ask you a couple things just in closing. Um, First, because we just talked a whole lot about kids, uh, just be Uncle Jeff for a second. Um, what one thing should a potential, you know, high school kid that is thinking about a career in the military, what one quality or one aspect of themselves should they focus on, or or, or something that would help them a figure out if that's the right path for them, or be successful in a path uh, going into the military. Um, I'll say commitment is one, right? Purpose is the other duty, like why you're doing it. And they got to go in knowing that they need to leave the organization better than when they got there. If if people go into that organization and they expect to get something out of that organization because they became part of it, it's the organization's not going to grow where it needs to go. So if if that's your passion, Mm -hmm. you want to go help and serve and do those things and be, have the privilege to be surrounded with other people like that, then leave it better than you got there. Don't go in there, expect it to make you with your book deal and your movie deal and start your own company. I, I was a green beret. I was a Navy seal.com, whatever. Take care of your people while you're in uniform. Don't do it after you get out and you know say you cared and did all those things. Treat those people you work with and respect the people that brought you into the organization. Make it a better place. Uh, that's all I can say. There, there's enough self-serving people in the world. We don't need it in this organization because it's the complete opposite of that. That's a uh, boy. That's a whole nother layer of stuff. Um, <laughs> Cause yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. Where, where that line is drawn, right. Yeah. Um, where, where it becomes about you and where it becomes, cause I was talking about this with a lot of people on the other flip side of it, where there's sometimes it seems like there's a lot of resentment of people that try to veterans that try to stick their head up above the crowd um, when they get out, that I also think is unjust because, hey, people, it's their lives and they can get on with it. But, you know, careerism in any number of respects is, I think, always a detriment, right? But not, putting- not even just careerism, just I'll take any ism. But if you were in there, like I, I had a kid, I'm not going to dime anybody out, but I was out, had an event out at Sears School and uh, 
one of the instructors out there was like, Hey, do you know? So-and-so he's like, yeah, that guy was a sadist. You know, he was my instructor. He's like, I, if I ever saw that guy again, I'd punch him in the face. And I was like, Oh, I was like, cool. I was like, he's not really like that instructor. He's like, I don't care. He treated everyone out here like garbage. And I was like, that's not how we want to represent a regiment. Right. Oh, I got you. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah. Think about that. Right. There's, if you're going to go in the military, like, Oh, I was just trying to make you hard. You got to walk that fine line being hard and stupid because you're going to perpetuate your hard and stupid on everyone else. There's got to be a purpose and intent when you're acting the way you are. And then you don't let those dudes leave without debriefing them. Like we went through like, when I went through buds, you want to talk about sadists, but every day they're like, we're doing this for your good. Like you will appreciate it when you get older, but they were open and honest about it. They, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's the difference of a good instructor or a good person that goes in with good intent to prepare you for the stuff you're going to face overseas. And then the guy who's just, I've got my patch, I've got my tab, I've got whatever I've got mine. Now I'm going to make you suffer. Cause I suffered. Those yeah. are turds. Those yeah. are turds. And we see them all the time going through our schools, tab protectors, bubble protectors, whatever they were. And then there's the dudes that actually cared. They could be hard. They were fair. They were honest. And then after you didn't want to kill them. You were like, I appreciate what you did helping me through this. I, I understand looking back at it now, what you were doing. But like I said, there's a couple people that get put in positions of power like that and they abuse the crap out of it. But I, I, yeah, for overall, we're doing pretty good with it. Yeah, it's funny because soft will always be a personality-based business, right? Yeah. It's, it's the value of that individual. But as a result, it kind of depends on so many idiosyncrasies and so many nuances of an individual. Um, that to, to make something work or not work. Um, last thing I want to ask you, um, this is something I I talked about with a a couple of people. Um, I don't know if you remember like 2006, I think I first heard that a lot of contracting companies or one conglomerate of them or one of them, I can't remember, um, had gotten an Island and were having their folks. And I don't know if it was Blackwater or or whoever it was or triple canopy, but they were having folks come back and decompress there and just chill out instead of going right back into CONUS and, and, and getting around their families and all that. And I don't know, I was, we were kind of doing a thought experiment with somebody the other day. And I was like, yeah, that seems like that would be kind of cool because the one thing that sucks sometimes about the military or DOD trying to help folks, especially immediately after a deployment is that it's DOD doing it. And that there's a big bureaucracy involved and there's sometimes the appreciation of the individual is missing right. and it almost feels punitive. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on, um, certainly you guys are looking a lot more, it seems, at the individual and individual needs and not having it be a semi-punitive process. Um, but what are your thoughts on the on how important it is for certain entities to take the lead in health and recovery, as opposed to kind of one big, one size fits all bureaucratic answer. So I'm glad you brought this up. So we had what's called deployment transition center, and we got it going for our group at the end of the war. Like basically it was like kind of too late. If you didn't do the education of why you were doing it and why it was important, like let's say the SAS did it all this time, like, you know, they were doing it to give that little buffer because now with technology, it wasn't like you took a ship across the you know, the Atlantic ocean for two weeks or whatever, you could be from the battlefield to your bedroom within 12 hours. And you're still in that mind frame of war and you come home and you're dealing with a family. That's not a good recipe for success for transition. 
Mission Center was set up. You come into Germany, the Air Force had it. They hosted it. We'd have an LNO there. They came in. They only got three days, but they went through all the classes of this is what to expect when you get home. This is what mama's seeing. This is what you're seeing. Kind of that buffer. Hey, go let loose for 12, 24 hours. Get it out of your system. And then, hey, we'll, we'll get you back. And then all these resources are, are available to you if you're struggling. But you can't fix a problem if you don't know there is a problem. So when, every time I deploy and come home, it was a seamless transition for me. I, I didn't notice it. For my family, it was like catastrophic. Like, hey, I've, I've been doing this for eight months. I don't need you. Stay out of here. You're stressing them out because you're moving everything in the house and your shit's everywhere. High stress. For me, I'm like, yeah, whatever. This is my place. You know, I, I've got this under control and it's not. And you know how we operate overseas. It's black, we're cavemen, right? We go to that lizard brain of the fighting, feeding, and the other F, right? And we come home, that's all we want to do. And they're like, I haven't seen you in eight months. We're not going right back to all that stuff. And you're just like, I want to go out with my bros. I want to go do this. But you're in survival mode because you don't know if you're coming back alive next time you go. So you're stuck in that survival brain. And that's primitive. That's that's primitive behavior that's hardwired into you to pass your seed and continue the offspring, right? Is That is what you default back to when you're stressed. And we were stressed. And we didn't acknowledge that we were stressed, but we were really good at those three Fs. And that's where guys get in trouble. The DUIs, the divorces, you know, all the affairs and all those things, your lizard brain, I call it TDY brain, but that's why it's happening. Add traumatic brain injury on top of it. Yeah. Substance abuse, childhood trauma, they got exasperated by combat trauma. And then all of a sudden these things start spinning out of control and you're like, I need to get another deployment before I get killed, kill someone else or get a DUI yeah. or a divorce. And it works really good to keep guys deploying all the time, but it's not sustainable, <laughs> right. not sustainable. Right. Right. But right. that's why guys are making those bad decisions because they're in survival mode and it's expected. So now that we're educating people about this, they're starting like, holy crap. I feel like you're personally attacking me. Right. I'm like, no, we all did it. And it doesn't mean you're broken or bad or, you know, it means you're a product of your environment and you weren't aware of why you were acting that way. So telling people not to do those things never works. But once they understand why they're doing those things and what they can do to counter them, implement your controls, control your controllables, then you see massive shift in behavior and action. And that's what we want to empower people with to do that, to be aware of what they're doing. Because you can tell them all day long, it's like the new they want to reduce access to guns to reduce suicide. It's the stupidest thing in the world, right? It's dumb. You, you don't can't just take away alcohol and women and drug and alcohol, whatever you have, and firearms and say, oh, don't do those. It's like us banning cars because there are more people killed in car accidents than guns, whatever it is. So we have to understand why that behavior is happening, how all those things from your lifestyle environment are driving them and then teach them how to control all those things in their lifestyle and environment. And that's it. It sounds super simple, but it really is. Yeah. We're in a place in the world where sometimes just saying the obvious seems to be more necessary than ever. So yeah. sometimes that's helpful just to reiterate the basic level <laughs> you yeah. know, skill sets. Guns don't jump in your hand and shoot people, right? Cars don't you know, jump, you know, into your house and you get in them and they start driving themselves into trees. It's the person operating all of that. It's the brain, it's the body. And if you teach people how to operate the brain and the body and when it's malfunctioning or, you know, functioning properly and what to do to keep those things in balance, then it, that equipment operates better. 
It's that simple. The operator manual for the individual. Jeff, we got to do this again, man. We got to do this again in the, in the dangerously near future, but um, listen, I appreciate it. And thanks for all the work you're doing um, over there. I, I know there's, a lot of second and third order effects of the work you guys are doing. And I, I see it. I see it so clearly because I'm on social media. Of course, I'm getting a completely hundred percent accurate picture, yeah. but it really is impressive stuff that you guys are doing. And, um, and thanks for doing it, man. And thanks for coming on here. Always a blast to talk to you. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate it. That was Jeff Dardia's profile in havoc. Check the show notes for all the links to task force dagger to Hunter seven um, to all those initiatives that we talked about. Um, if you need them, you probably weren't even waiting for me to tell you to go check the links. But if you were, for some reason, by all means, now go ahead and check those links. Go to them. Uh, I think you get a very clear sense the way Jeff talked about what's available to you and the level of expertise and dedication that awaits you when you click on those links. So check that out. And uh, boy, it's a blast having Jeff on. Okay, I started off this episode by thanking our sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I'd like to close by thanking our other sponsor, the Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And yes, full disclosure, this is my nonprofit. Veterans Repertory Theater produces the Savage Wonder podcast, the Savage Wonder literary blog, the Write Loud events on Instagram Live, a whole bunch of line of efforts that you can track at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. But I would be remiss if I did not mention the latest and greatest line of effort at VetRep, which is, of course, the Savage Wonder Festival. Coming to you on May 29th of this year, the day before Memorial Day. It is a Sunday, but the day before Memorial Day at Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center in beautiful upstate Chester, New York. That will be the site of, God, I don't know where we are now, maybe 40-ish veterans in the arts, poets, published poets, professional musicians, bands, um, theater except because Scott Mann is writing a book and didn't have enough time to turn around and do a live stage performance. We're going to do the filmed play of last out the elegy of a green beret that Scott wrote and stars in. And uh, that's going to be rolling out on Amazon prime. So to commemorate that and celebrate that we will be featuring, we'll be doing a movie screening there. We will also have Roman Baca and the exit 12 dance company. Not a lot of Marine machine gunners become dance choreographers, uh, especially after a tour in Fallujah, Roman did. So there you go. And we're going to have his dancers there uh, putting on some very cool stuff. Uh, we'll have the poetry readings. We'll have, you know, all the stuff you expect at a festival. Tons of booze out there, food trucks, beer garden, the works. It's going to be a blast. Um, I'm trying to remember when you're going to be hearing this episode. Because I, a little, if you guys want some inside baseball, it's the end of the episode. If you've waited this long, I'll give you a little inside baseball into some of the production stuff with this episode. Um, I knew I was going to be busy. I knew May was going to be a really busy month. So I tried to get ahead of the curve and do as many episodes in advance as I could. So when I need to take a week off and not do an episode, I could afford to. 
So as a result, I'm always trying to figure out when these episodes are going to drop. Uh, and in this case, uh, tickets are going to be cheap-ish, not as cheap as they were. So hopefully you found out about the festival before this episode. But if you didn't, I can promise you the tickets are only going to get more expensive uh, closer to the time. And at the gate, they will be the most expensive. So do yourself a favor, get tickets now while you can. And um, we're trying to keep it as affordable as possible so everybody can go that wants to. And and we're not a strain on the pocketbook because we want you guys to be there. This is, you know, we want to have um, not just a great turnout, but, you know, the right kind of turnout, the folks that want to go see veterans in the arts and support that. So if you like the arts or if you like veterans, much less if you like them both, this could be the event you want to be at. So, um yeah, so we're trying to keep it as affordable as possible. So do yourself a favor, though, and get tickets immediately to save yourself a little bit of money. Um, do I have anything else to say about Savage Wonder Festival? Maybe not, but it's going to be badass. And um, check it out if you haven't already. You can always go to SavageWonder.com and see everything about the festival. SavageWonder.com, all one word, SavageWonder.com. Um, or you can follow us on Instagram. It's Savage Wonder Festival on Instagram. So very easy to find. Um, and we have links to it at vetrep.org as well. So a lot of ways for you to stay in touch and see what we're up to and see what the latest is. But you don't want to miss this. It's going to be incredibly badass. Okay. Thank you to Veterans Repertory Theater for sponsoring this episode or co-sponsoring it, I should say. And I don't think there's anything else I really have to run through with you guys. So you guys know the script. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, by all means, go ahead and do so. If you're on iTunes, we would deeply appreciate your five-star review. Um, say whatever you want to us, questions, comments, snide remarks. But if you could attach five stars to that review, that would just be outstanding. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Jeff Dardia. And we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.